Blog Talk Radio. Yo, this is your boy, G-Ski Rocks. And this is going out to the lovely, lovely women of the world. I know sometimes you have to make a hard decision. But I want you to think about Just 
Welcome to Pro-Life Fridays Radio. Today it is September 27, 2013. I am on the air with my host. I'm Leticia Wong, by the way. With my co-host. Hey there, Thomas. Hey there, Melissa. Hi, everybody. Hey, how's everybody? All right. Well, before we get going on all this stuff, I really want you to hear this because it is what's happening now and it's going to be affecting everybody. So let's let's listen to this real quick. Okay. If it'll play. Here we go. On the care. Fun. Cool. YOLO. At Obamacare, we believe in saying the words affordable health care so that young people will love us and sign up like lemmings. Sure, you pay 2.5% of your income in penalties, but young people don't have to worry about that because you don't have a job. Work sucks. That's why we at Obamacare want to trade your full-time job for a part-time one so you'll have more time for fun things like watching millionaire celebrities tweet about how affordable we are. Obamacare, just like guys enjoy premium leather seats, so too you'll enjoy paying triple the health care premiums out of your new part-time salary. Speaking of guys, ever been on a mandate before? At Obamacare, we're full of mandates. But don't worry, big corporations get exempt, so you don't have to. It's fun paying for things you don't even use. Yeah, you work out, stay healthy, but come on, brah. Someone's got to pay for people who smoke, drink 85-ounce sodas, and live in a Barca lounger. So enjoy your premium hikes, young people of America, because everyone loves hikes. Obamacare. If millionaire celebrities can afford us, why can't you? A message from the White House Office of Obamacare. Propaganda to get young people to love us and sign up like lemmings. All right. I have never been called bra before, but yo, bra, can you uh, begin our show with our scripture and our prayer? Because we're going to need it. We got lots of prayers. Yeah, most definitely. Chapter 30, verse 19 says, I record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life so that you and your seed might live. Dear Heavenly Father, in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, first and foremost, I lift up to you in the name of Jesus, the Beachley family, Lord God, in their time of grief, Lord, and Father, you know the personal struggle that I am dealing with in this situation. And I acknowledge to you, Lord God, I don't know where Rex was in his relationship with you, Lord God. I know that he and his family are very devout Catholic but that was the extent. Father, I pray that you comfort Sarah Kim, Rachel, Adam, all Rex's brother in their time in their time of loss, Lord God. 
And just as this show is about life, Lord God, anytime there's any life that is lost, we grieve. Because just like to you, life is precious to us because it's precious to you. So as we talk about the effects of the upcoming health care, or should we say death care law, Father, we pray that the listeners will wake up. We pray that they will glean the wisdom and understand fully what is about to take place. I thank you for my two co-hosts, Melissa and Letitia, the brains that make this show go, Lord God. I pray that you give them wisdom and clarity and continue to give them wisdom and clarity as you continue to wrap them in your grace, your mercy, and your love. We love you and we bless you. In the mighty name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So I feel like I need to play that video again. <laughs> it's really good. Go <laughs> um, <laughs> All right. Let's hear that again. Obamacare. Fun. Cool. YOLO. At Obamacare, we believe in saying the words affordable health care so that young people will love us and sign up like lemmings. Sure, you pay 2.5% of your income in penalties, but young people don't have to worry about that because you don't have a job. Work sucks. That's why we at Obamacare want to trade your full-time job for a part-time one. So you'll have more time for fun things like watching millionaire celebrities tweet about how affordable we are. Obamacare, just like guys enjoy premium leather seats, so too you'll enjoy paying triple the health care premiums out of your new part-time salary. Speaking of guys, ever been on a mandate before? At Obamacare, we're full of mandates. But don't worry, big corporations get exempt, so you don't have to. It's fun paying for things you don't even use. Yeah, you work out, stay healthy, but come on, bra. Someone's got to pay for people who smoke, drink 85-ounce sodas, and live in a Barca lounger. So enjoy your premium hikes, young people of America, because everyone loves hikes. Obamacare. If millionaire celebrities can afford us, why can't you? A message from the White House Office of Obamacare. Propaganda to get young people to love us and sign up like lemmings. <laughs> come on, bra. Wow. YOLO, brah. That's pretty good. (laughs) I I don't um, even know how to touch that one. That's pretty good. (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, the reason we were playing that is uh, it was a perfect, perfect way to sum up um, what's been happening on Capitol Hill this past week. Just today, the Senate voted, that includes Republicans, Senate voted to pass the continuing resolution that included uh, funding for Obamacare. Now, that was uh, 
that's been the big issue. Mm. So here, let's start from the beginning. The unaffordable, what I call the unaffordable lack of care and patient victimization act is to activate beginning next week. And how is it affecting Americans already? The main effect is giving everyone a heart attack. So we'll need our health care, and maybe some of us will be without it. But over the past week, Texas Senator Ted Cruz asked for and was flooded with letters from Americans who had a health care plan and couldn't keep it. It almost sounds like a nursery rhyme, you know, which is why I said it that way, you know. Peter, Peter, average cheater, had a plan and couldn't keep her. And what Senator Cruz received was letter after letter about people losing the health care plan they've had and it being replaced by something far more expensive and in some cases triple the cost. And triple the premiums, and it covers less than what they need, but it makes sure that single men have free birth control pills. And doesn't that sound awesome? So he took to the floor of the Senate to filibuster uh, the continuing resolution with the funding for Obamacare in it. He read those letters on the floor of the Senate as part of his filibuster, and despite all of Senator Cruz's efforts, the Senate passed the CR that puts funding back into the bill, the House passed defunding Obamacare. Mm. So the House took it away and the Senate put it back. All All this at the hands of Senate Democrats, of course, and Republican backstabbers like Missouri's Mm -hmm. own Roy Blunt. And like South Carolina's own uh, Lindsey Graham, where I am. That's (laughs) right. Yes. Well, we don't expect that much from Lindsey Graham, but uh, Roy Blunt was kind of a toss-up, but now he's firmly in the I'm a rhino camp now. Uh, so the ball, it seems, like it will go back to the House. And, well, mm-hmm. you know, frankly, I don't have much faith in Speaker John Boehner. He didn't mm-hmm. like the defunding of Obamacare in the first place. I don't know. It's something tells me he can't be trusted. It might have something to do with saying, personally saying, that he doesn't want uh, to have this debate over defunding Obamacare. He'd just rather fund it and move on with it. And, and it's all, you know, twisting the arm of the American people because it's tied to lifting up the debt ceiling. Oh, where have we been with that before? Oh, yes, last year. And well, I think it was maybe eight months before that, too. So we mm-hmm. have... You know, let's talk about tying everything up together and making this one giant mess of legislation. And um, so this is how this is how Democrats yank Republicans around because there has never been in the last five years. Well, we had, didn't get to this point in five years. We got to a point in about three. But in the last three years, where we've had to argue repeatedly in the legislature over whether or not the, the government is going to be continue to be funded uh, for another, I don't know what, nine months, eight months? I don't know, but however long it was. And it's being used by Democrats to yank around Republicans to get what they want. And they're saying that Republicans are going to be blamed 
if they don't pass this continuing resolution and the government shuts down. Well, I've heard more than enough people say, let it shut down. For crying out loud, you're doing too much anyway. Take a break. Really, for real, take a break. And, uh, you know, personally, I don't have a problem with the government shutdown. So I don't know why Republicans are running around with their heads cut off saying, we have to pass this thing because we don't want to get blamed. Well, you know what? Who's in charge in the Senate? If they wanted to fund this darn thing, they would. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't buy it. I have never bought this idea that it's, it's all on the Republicans' heads. But for some reason, those sitting in office think uh, Roy Blunt himself had said, "I don't want you know this. I don't want Republicans to be blamed in the media for causing the government shutdown." Well, you know, thank you, sir, for drinking the Kool Aid. Mm-hmm. That's what that's that's what they're telling you they're gonna do. Why do you accept it? I I don't know. I, okay, back to the story. So about these personal stories of people who are losing their current coverage to Obamacare. What is happening to the in the majority of cases is that the insurance companies, in order to be Obamacare compliant, are really just pushing people into a one size fits most plan that really just cuts coverage for a lot of necessary care and then charges people more to cover birth control pills and abortions. Abortions. Mm. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's in there. <laughs> and we'll get to that later. But Americans are getting a rude awakening to the fact that Obamacare is serving up a raw deal. People have been told in writing that they will be paying higher much higher premiums, even though President Obama promised otherwise. He had said that health care costs would go down by about $2,500. Remember that? Your costs mm-hmm. will go down $2,500. Now, you know, it's up to Kathleen Sebelius now to laugh it off and say, well, did he really say that? No, I, did he say down? No, he meant up, not down. Oh, no, he just meant up. And it all gets good saying that it's up because it's not up as high as uh, we thought it would be. So, you know, she's admitting, because she made these the HHS has to make these statements, that premium increases aren't as high as they projected, uh, which kind of leads me to believe that they knew that they would go up, even though they were lying to us and telling us that it was going to go down. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, we were told that we could keep our doctors, too. Well, can we? Just three days ago, stltoday.com, the online version of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, had printed a story which said that BJC Healthcare, which is Barnes Jewish Christian, uh, it's, it's a conglomerate, it's a combined hospital network, BJC Healthcare, which is Missouri's largest health care provider, is likely to be excluded from the state's new health insurance exchange because of BJC's high medical charges, according to St. Louis area health brokers and consultants. Anthem Blue Cross and Blue Shield in Missouri, the state's largest seller of individual health insurance policies, has decided to operate what they call a narrow network, both on and off the health insurance exchange, that would not include BJC healthcare facilities and physicians, 
and physicians, and physicians, Mm. and physicians, according to those experts. They also said that Anthem is still deciding whether or not to include Chesterfield-based Mercy Health Hospitals and physicians and physicians in its network of health providers for individual policies sold on the Missouri Exchange. Well, let me tell you something. Missouri is the the healthcare capital of the country, if you didn't know this already. In St. Louis, we have the largest healthcare networks and the highest concentration of them, <clears throat> excuse me, for a city this size. BJC is one of the largest employers here. And for an insurance company to ex- exclude coverage for anything that is connected to their network is huge because just about a million and a half people rely on BJC to be their health care providers. And that includes the world-class children's hospital, which is downtown St. Louis. That's part of the BJC system. So if you live in St. Louis and will be affected by this change, you voted for Obama in 2012, and have the Obama phone, you, I think, are entitled to your one phone call to your congressmen and senators to ask them why you have a free phone but not a doctor. (sighs) But what's in store for all of us in the future? Uh, this This is certainly something that's coming down to affect Missouri. What's going to affect all of us uh, in the future? And cue the music. Oh, she lost. All right. But what's in store for all of us in the future? For months, I have been shouting it from the rooftops that government-managed health care is, well, it's health care to see, what we see to the north of us in in Canada and across the pond in Great Britain also in France, which has really managed that. Every country that socialized medicine has been instituted has resulted in far more people dying from it. And why is that? It's a bit like George Bernard Shaw's vision in which he wanted every man and woman to be evaluated on a recurring basis on their worthiness to continue life on Earth. He said if you couldn't justify your existence, then society shouldn't have to bear the burden of keeping you alive. And that's his word. Well, Shaw's ideas are actualizing most visibly in Great Britain, which is, you know, not too long ago instituted what they call a pathway, as they call it officially, to death for those whom doctors determine are too old, too sick, or too expensive to treat with the tax dollars in the system. That is, it's a planned neglect of your medical needs until you die. But there are reports in the UK's Daily Mail that say up to 60,000 people die per year on the pathway, many of them without having been consulted about it, and many of them, and many of their families not having been consulted about it. But Britain's health secretary says it's, it's great, it's awesome. In fact, his words were that the pathway system is a, quote, a fantastic step forward. He says the pathway helps people to die in a dignified way. 
So you know that the pathway is a pathway to a better place, kind of like the highway. It's a highway. It's a highway. It's like the show. Remember that show in the 80s with Michael Landon? What was it called? Highway yeah. to Heaven. The Highway to yep. Heaven. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <Does it? laughs> I know the tune. <laughs> that was my show. Sorry. <laughs> yes, Leticia, you got it. It's a highway to heaven. Doesn't that make it all better now that we call it that? <laughs> you know, we call it, we call it a highway to heaven. And we'll <laughs> be okay with that. You know, we're not, we're not killing you. We're preparing you to go to heaven. <laughs> the truth is, <laughs> like anyone under socialized medicine, Obamacare makes everyone who has a job pay for inadequate care. That's if you have a job. If you have, if you, you, you have to face it. You have to face it, America. Uh, Obamacare is not the same health care plan that Congress has. Do you remember that? How many people took yeah. to the floor of the House and the Senate, and Obama and the big-hearted Democrats were really sad that Americans didn't have the plans they had. I want Americans, listen, Harry Reid, I want Americans to have what I have. Oh, my gosh. Um, and also, not to exclude anyone, you know, because they recognize that some Americans, as the president said, had it too good. Now, I don't know what that really means in practical sense, in a practical sense, what having it too good means. As you know, does that mean... Congress and and the Senate and the President and all their staff staffers don't have it too good. So that's what they want us to have. <laughs> but they wanted us to have it, and it's not too good. So those that have it too good can't have it too good, but they're okay. And so they but want us to have they're... what they have. <laughs> and then a couple of months ago, they all voted to exclude themselves from this great plan that they wanted all us all of us to have, which is supposed to be what they have. Right. I mean somebody makes sense of that. I hello. Hello. <laughs> yeah. So I yeah, I, I feel like I'm living in, in as far as Obamacare is concerned, I feel like like we're living in the twilight zone. I mean does not any does, all these items are floating by my head saying, Okay, you know, it's like this and it's like this and and we're trying to tie these things together but somehow it's it's bizarro world, and it's swirling around, and people are like, yeah, this is awesome. It's really great. And it's just like the pathway. It's really great. Let's let's move it forward. Right. So, I mean, this this is the future. As long as Congress is playing around with trying to fund it, Republicans and Democrats are trying to fund this monstrosity. We're going to be looking at health care, not unlike what Canada has, not unlike what uh, Great Britain has, and you're going to see the death toll rise. And people, oh, no, you're exaggerating. Am I? I don't think the numbers from Great Britain lie. And (laughs) testimonies of people that that say they have to wait in uh, hospital emergency rooms for just regular care lie. They have to wait. So, I mean, we already have to wait hours. These people have to wait many more hours to get just regular 
decent care. Their level of triage is terrible. And if you need a scheduled surgery, it is months. It is months before you can get a surgery. People often die before they get the care they need. Mm-hmm. Which is why they come to the United States. Those with right. money pay to have the care they need here in the United States. Right. How I, I mean, it's the irony of it, was, it all is that they, they pay for a great system they can't use. Right. You know, on a personal too, um, Letitia, I um, I needed to reschedule my daughter's pediatrician appointment this week, and basically was not even given. I could not. Um, in order for her to be seen, it would be two to three months out for me to mm-hmm. for me to reschedule her appointment. And what I learned later was that there are other pediatrician clinics in the area that have shut down as they see these changes coming into effect, and so therefore. Um, Certain offices in our area, certain medical practices are are overwhelmed with those patients. So it's I, I've never known that you you can't call and reschedule an appointment. But it's 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 you're locked in. If you want to see the doctor, you have to see the doctor that day. And there's no changes, and there are no um, there's no leeway with with it's it's do or die medicine. <laughs> you know, um, right, right. You get there, you know, or, or you're just short, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, when you start taking away people's ability to negotiate directly with doctors, now it could be that the specialist that you see is not uh, is, is so rare that right, yeah, you know, this is, yeah, it's like the, the pediatrician's office. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. But the the fewer, I mean, the medicine that has operated on a capitalist system by by allow, throw it, basically throwing open the doors, saying the most qualified people uh, and the best people will meet, will be sought after by people who would, who are willing to pay them to, to care for them, um, creates, a, creates the competition for others to try to be as good as the people that are being sought after so that they can be sought after. And the more people mm-hmm. you have included in the system, the more choices the person who needs care, it's like a consumer, can has the more choices you have. And so you can find the person, the doctor, that best fits your needs. And since there's a lot of people in the game, they want to compete for your business, they're going to offer a reasonable um, price for their services. That's how competition works. That's how the free market works. Can this, can this, can this system of trading services for compensation and money go awry? Certainly it can. Can people become abused? Certainly. But the basic system is not built for abuse because if you have the freedom to choose a doctor, you have the freedom to unchoose him. <laughs> you don't like him. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and when government steps in, and I'm not saying that government should stay away, completely away. There is, I'm a, I'm a small government person. There is a role for government, but it better stick to that role, because if it tries to do something else, it just screws everyone over. So, I mean, I'm not one of these laissez-faire people that say, you know, government just needs to completely step off, because mm-hmm. it's, it's role. It has a role and making sure that crime does not take place, to punish criminals. Um, anyway, yeah, so I'm, I'm, 
what you have to deal with is only going to get compounded if you are forced into a system with fewer choices. I mean, some things, some things happen to be that way, and, you know, some people have to move out of that particular area or find other options, but you have the freedom to do that. But let's just say your insurance company um, says, well, this is how it is right now. Your insurance company says we are not going to cover certain costs. Okay. Well, what are your options? You can choose to you can choose to have another insurance company that will cover your costs. You can negotiate. You can make all this happen. But what happens when the government says, "No, we we're, nobody's going to be able to cover you because all the money is locked up in." in a single-payer system or a government-approved system. And if the government says no, that's the final word. You're screwed. Yeah. <laughs> you have no one else to appeal to. You have no options. Right. So um, furthermore, what's this going to do? I mean, it's not going to be – the suffering is not equally distributed, uh, unfortunately, even though – they say that it's going to be. One of my friends, Winery Knight, who pointed out, who po posted the, have you seen this chart where it says how much percentage the premiums of an average American worker is going to have to pay? How much more uh, per state? And so they have most of the states with data on it. And so Missouri is ranks at 104%. I shouldn't say ranks. That's not the right word. But the premiums, for health insurance, for a for an average person who lives in Missouri with insurance, the premiums are going to go up by about 104 mm percent. -hmm. Double. That is Crazy. double, and that's not the highest. We've got the the highest are uh, what is that? Nebraska at 279 percent. Um, mm -hmm. Arkansas at 247%. That's crazy. The only states that are seeing a decrease, and there's only two listed. Um, Colorado, for some reason, is down like 36%. But that is a data point that's an outlier. That's a total, that's a total data. It's really weird because none of the other states have a 36% decrease in the average premiums. Uh, that's just, I don't know. Anyway, but he says, uh, he quotes from Forbes magazine who did the analysis, who's put up this chart, and he says, many of the young single men and young single women are going to foot the bill for the rest of the population, the rest of the insured population. The reason is, and men more than women, there's going to be an average of 97 to 99% increase in insurance rates for younger men and for younger women by an average of 55 to 62%. And so, you know, you want to ask, why is it higher for men than women? And here's the kicker. And, he, and this is where my friend Lintry puts this down. He says, uh, you might be asking why men have to pay more than women for Obamacare premiums. And the answer is simple. Even though women use a lot more health care, companies are now forbidden from making women pay more because they use more. Women will be paying less because men will be picking up the cost. That's called equality. 
The same thing happened with the stimulus, which also favored women because they are more likely than men to support big government Democrats at election time. <laughs> wow. But that is that's the that's the end all. So uh, this is called the redistribution of wealth. What what government won't redistribute in dollars, it will redistribute in uh shared cost. So what will so you know, far from everybody going to the grocery store and paying the same price for a certain item, they've graduated the price. Now, track with me here. They've graduated the price of certain things according to sex. Mm-hmm. Now, imagine if that were the case at your grocery store, that men had to pay higher a higher price for their groceries than women. Mm-hmm. And what if we flip that? What if we flip that? What if women had to pay more for their groceries than men? I mean, without a doubt, everybody would be jumping up and down and saying how discriminatory that is. <laughs> oh, yeah, the National Organization for Women would be um, livid, absolutely livid. They'd be at the at the capital steps right now. Oh, holding the <laughs> <laughs> So, um, there, there isn't anything about this Obamacare issue that is left. There's no stone that they didn't leave unturned in 20, 2,100 pages of legislation. They made sure they absolutely redistributed um, everything to make it as unequal as possible. But, you know, so that in order to give women free birth control, they had to give everybody free free birth control. 80-year-old women and 19-year-old men. That's that's equality. (laughs) Yeah. Uh Oh, boy. Uh, So I'm going to take a very, very short break and come back with our guest, Lonnie Poindexter from Cure. Stay on the line. If you have questions and want to call in and ask our guest or our host something, the number to call in is 760-542-3907, and we'll put you right on the line. Phone lines are open.
Society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. I do not join in the belief that the African is our equal in brain or in heart. We are paying for and even submitting to the dictates of an ever-increasing, unceasingly spawning class of human beings who never should have been born at all. The laws of nature require the obliteration of the unfit. The best way to hate a nigger is to hate him before he is born. American eugenicists were routinely praising Hitler and holding up the Nazi eugenics program as a model for the United States to copy. Non-white races must be excluded from America. The red and black races, if left to themselves, revert to a savage or semi-savage state in a short time. The only way possible of decreasing Negro population is by means of controlling fertility. Birth control facilities could be extended relatively more to Negroes than to whites, since Negroes are more concentrated in the lower income and education classes. We hope that the restraint of population growth can come about through voluntary means. But if it does not, involuntary methods will be used. There should be national sterilization for certain dysgenic types of our population who are being encouraged to breed and would die out were the government not feeding them. If this movement continues, we soon may be accused of fighting poverty by eliminating the poor and overcoming hunger by removing the hungry. For all their failures, what the eugenics movement had accomplished was to lay the foundation for the next phase of their plan. And this is where they would find the success that they had been chasing for over 100 years. And welcome back to Pro-Life Fridays Radio. You are on <clears throat> listening to Letitia, and we have a guest today. And Thomas, would you care to bring our guest on the line, please? Absolutely. You know, um, and it's kind of it's just kind of fitting in light of uh, what Patricia talked about, and also in light of what I found out today. This gentleman, myself, and Patricia had the had the pleasure of meeting. Uh, Back in July, when we were invited to the press conference for Tanya Reeves, and um, at the time I met him, I had no clue that the Lord was uh, building a building a um, a friendship, mentorship, if you will. And it's really even more poignant in light of the fact that today. Um, I got some information that a 25-year friend friend of mine, well, they knew me when I was 14 years old, extremely opposite, polar, polar opposite when it comes to the political spectrum. But you know what? This family, and especially my friend Rex, they were, he was an example of, Friendship and love transcending all, you know, all bounds. And I found out today that um, he passed from a allergic reaction to these things on Monday. And in a way, he, a lot like 
what Lonnie has been doing for me now. He was someone who kicked my tail when I was wrong and encouraged me when I was up. But Lonnie Poindexter is a friend to a lot of people and a mentor to a lot of people, not just me. And as you all are about to hear, when he speaks, he speaks because he cares and what he speaks about very, very knowledgeable on. So please join myself, Letitia and Melissa, in welcoming the director of the Pastors Network for Urban Cure, Mr. Lonnie Poindexter, to Pro-Life Friday. Lonnie, welcome to the show. Well, uh, I don't know what to say, uh, my friend, other than uh, the checks in the mail for <laughs> that great uh, send-up. But I'm certainly uh, honored and, and, um, and sincerely uh, um, humbled by being invited to the program and um, for you considering that uh, that I would have something even to contribute to such an esteemed program. I heard a lot about uh, the radio program, and it's really oh, interesting. Don't be because, so humble. Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> wait till I get really get started. You know, it's really interesting though that uh, with your with your radio program, um, you know that um, I host on Stars Radio program on American Family Radio, and um, we on Fridays um, every day of the week we have a different theme. Uh, Monday is Ministry Monday, Wednesday is Worldview Wednesday. Uh, and Friday is Pro-Life Friday. So when I heard about the radio program that you all have been doing, I said, okay, this was Kiss Bet. This was meant to be. We're supposed to connect with these folks. And, and, and I tell you, it was indeed a pleasure meeting you, um, Leticia, and, uh, and Thomas in, in, in um, Chicago back in July for a, uh, a great occasion there. And I'm just, you know, great to be on the program this morning. And for all you listeners out there, this is a great organization. They do some wonderful work, and uh, we just um, are excited to be able to walk and lockstep with what you all are doing because uh, we're in a, a pivotal time in this nation, and um, as I'm sure you all know. And uh, we should all join arms in this great army that God's assembling so we can stem the tide until Christ's return. Mm-hmm. All right. So, um, Thomas, did you have some questions that you wanted to start off with? Well, actually, Lonnie, I have a very special request. Um, I would like for you to share your personal story um, about how you became so uh, so immersed in the in the pro life battle, if if you if you will, because it it stunned me when you shared what you shared with me a few weeks ago, and then from there, Letitia and Melissa's gonna take over the rest of the interview. So, okay, well, I can. If you ask, why would a man be so uh, passionate about this particular uh, cause? Um, and there's a variety of reasons. First and foremost, because it touches me personally, and I don't mean because I happen to know somebody uh, or something second, second or third hand, but because uh, for me, um, um, abortion and is a very personal issue because I am a post-abortive father. 
and um, I have some years on me. So um, I, I remember in 1973 uh, when Roe v. Wade was held uh, held up at the Supreme Court level, and uh, and abortion became legal across the land. Um, and I remember as a junior in high school, so I'm dating myself here, all the scuttlebug that went about and all the rumors and so forth about this um, legislation, if you will, and then um, about this new thing that would take care of an inconvenience. And now I'm on the tail end of the uh, baby boomer, so not being a 60s child, I'm a 70s child. And so uh, free love and all that took place, but it really kicked up in the 70s because once they decide to open that Pandora's box, um, it was all the talk on the high school campuses and in particularly on the college campuses. So to make a long story short, um, I was in my first year of college and a young lady that I was uh, uh, in a relationship with and had been my high school sweetheart, um, I um, got her pregnant and because we were both in college and uh, I was actually in my first year of college and she was in her getting ready to graduate from high school and she had been accepted at UCLA and she was a pre, uh, pre-dental major, and I'm um, expecting uh, big and great things. And so uh, her family got together and talked and um, decided that uh, maybe that was the best course of action, and they approached me, she approached, or she approached me about that, and uh, I agreed with them, and so our inconvenience went away. Now, not understanding the ramifications of those choices or that particular choice and what it would play in my life going forward, and in her life and particularly going forward. So, you know, it was everyone was ignorant to the issue. And what's really interesting today is the populace, for the most part, as I'm sure you all know, is fairly ignorant to exactly what abortion even means and exactly what they do. So when I, um, some years later, was made uh, aware of actually what the practice is and exactly what they do, um, uh, to those poor women who climb up into those stirrups and those abortuaries. I tell you, it was a real come-to-Jesus moment, moment for me. So from that point forward, I began to um, do what I could from my little small pulpit to uh, uh, get the message out, not knowing that some years later that God would put me on a national stage to be able to do that in a way where I can reach a lot more people. And so I've got a unique, not a unique story, but a story that's unique unto me and that I understand uh, what it means and the fullness thereof and have the regrets that uh, thereof that come from having participated in uh, that type of choice. And um, it's not an inconvenience. It's um, the doing away with a life. Uh, thank God for the blood of Jesus who covers all sins because we all fall short. Um, so um, I'm thankful for that. But I would not want anybody to take the path or the road that I took because there's a price that you pay. So that's kind of my story. There's a lot more to that, but um, it's that's what's going on with me. And so I am uh, passionate in doing whatever I can um, from the pulpit that God has given me uh, to, to, to beat that drum um, to illuminate the community, and, and particularly the black community, about this heinous practice because we're, you know, we're overrepresented in, in the statistics about uh, uh, what abortion even does. Um, in our community, depending on which study you look at, uh, between 15 and 17 million black babies have been aborted in 40 years, uh, effectively cutting the black population in half in 40 years. That's pretty right. scary statistics. Right, right. Um, so tell, tell me what the implications are of 
the the rate at which uh, black community is being lost through abortion, and you know and that's on top. This is this is the rate of abortion is much higher than all the the homicides, the drug use, accidental death, and disease put together. Yes. So I, I mean, so the so I mean put and then put them all together plus abortion, the black community is being decimated um, in in most horrible ways. And what does this do to the state of the country, I guess? I'm asking you to kind of extrapolate. What does this mean for the black community overall, both economically, educationally, um, and representationally? Well, I can say um, right off the top, it represents, um, for the first time in history, we as an ethnic group in this nation are facing depopulation in areas uh, or communities where we have traditionally had strong growth going all the way back to uh, um, to, uh, um, to deconstruction. So um, you look at the large urban uh, centers across America and when the great migration from the south to the north, areas like Milwaukee, uh, uh, New York, Chicago, um, the West Coast, Los Angeles area, um, and then further south, Atlanta, and so forth. All those communities um, are experiencing depopulation or a leveling off of population as it relates to black Americans. So that has never happened before. Even when we were persecuted, I mean racially, during the worst days of Jim Crow, the numbers did not begin right. to even approach what we're dealing with today. Let me put this into context. If you look at um, what they say uh, statistically of what happened with the Holocaust in uh, Europe um, with the annihilation between 6 and 8 million Jews, um, which took place in the mid-40s um, um, during World War II and Hitler doing the heinous activity he was doing, if you take that, and, and I'm not, believe me, I'm not, I'm not trying to take away the significance of that event and how horrid it was, but when you compare that between the 15 and 17 million black babies supported in this country in 40 years, it begins to give you some type of, you know, uh, you, can, you can kind of look and see, oh, my God, this is the, this is the great genocide. And overall, mm -hmm. 55 million plus babies in general or whatever ethnicities that are taken out in this, or in this nation and what they actually do when they carry out this practice, it begins to let you know that, you know, we're being targeted specifically um, – Black and urban communities, which uh, well, well, urban communities, which translates to black and Latino, 70 plus mm -hmm. percent of the abortion clinics that are in America today are located in those communities. And I've looked right. at some stats that are even higher than that. And um, so it's 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 not happenstance. It's not a coincidence. This is planned. And, and our tax dollars go to support this to the tune of about $1,600 per abortion. So we are paying tax money to annihilate babies. And we're paying tax dollars to keep the practice going. And the organization with Planned Parenthood is the largest purveyor. If you guys follow, anyone that follows this program knows their history with Margaret Sanger, a, uh, a eugenist, and, um, and just a really evil individual who was very well thought of within the Nazi community, by the way, um, is um, right. start this organization. So they, they were able to accomplish in 40 years what Jim Crow – Slavery, uh, separate but equal, uh, lynching, every denial of service and so forth that's the history of blacks in this country, they could not accomplish in that time frame, which is over the course of, depending where you look at the numbers, 150 years or so, um, to today, they've done in 40 years what they couldn't do then. 
So you have to ask yourself who's behind that, what's going on. Right. How how did they do this? How did they do this? Because um, we you know I imagine this time because by now a lot of people have heard this uh, when we trot out the information. This is the history of Margaret Sanger. This is the history of Planned Parenthood mm-hmm. and her ties to eugenics and her ties and her her expressed desire to reduce the black population. Um, how and and they go on full frontal denial and say no no no. This isn't how we do business now. We don't we don't target anybody. You know, do people people voluntarily come to to Planned Parenthood? We don't pressure anybody. We don't have a, a marketing scheme or anything like that. And it's a lot of denial. What do you say to that? Because <laughs> they will deny it. They do deny well, it. They do deny, it. and I say it's hogwash. When you create an environment where you um, you break down the family. Um, and you create environments where uh, dad can't be home and that he's not required to be home because the the new daddy, which is nanny government, has stepped in and said that we'll fulfill your needs that way. But by the way, that man can't be there. Uh, you create an environment that, um, that perpetuates um, the activity so that um, young women who become impregnated and have no in their mind, no other option, look to seek it out with the convenient solution. So this thing walks and walks up with um, with, with the, uh, the civil rights, uh, not the civil rights, but the entitlement legislation that took place in the uh, mid-60s um, after the civil rights movement and created mm-hmm. this perfect storm, um, if you will, where um, this kind of thing can take place. You know, it's really interesting, the number 70 seems to permeate throughout uh, the statistics that at, at the uh, horrible things that are happening in the black urban communities, and uh, where you have 70% of uh, black families today are single parent, typically female head of household. Right. And I would say what um, happened, and why they were so effective with the civil rights movement's best practices, they commandeered that methodology. And so once it was designated that. Uh, um, that they could use that as the methodology to push this forward, you know, it just created, again, as I say, that, that perfect storm for what we're dealing with today. So I had I had uh, a specific question I talked to you earlier on the phone with about, um, and which is mm-hmm. how, does, how does the practice of abortion, because abortion has been being marketed, is heavily marketed, to everybody, as the solution to uh, is not the solution, but a solution to individual right. poverty. That unless a woman has an abortion, she will remain poor. Unless abortion is legal, uh, the black community will remain poor. Anybody, any set of com- any community will remain poor. Um, and after 40 years, I still see the same communities be, uh, poor. <laughs> How? Tell us how how is it not working, and I have a sneaking suspicion that it actually contributes to fostering more poverty. So, I mean, do you see any of that? Do you have any insight into that? That's exactly what we see here at Cure, and we've put together um, a number of white papers um, with subject matter experts that speaks to this. But I'll just throw out the term post-abortion syndrome. This is something that's, um, that's common knowledge of those who are in the pro-life movement, especially those with, um, that um, participate within counseling. And the very real thing that uh, women that have abortions are much more prone to have additional abortions um, and much more prone to have more children 
Um, and so it creates, again, the cycle so that you have an abortion, you feel guilty and convicted because you have the abortion, so you promptly go out and get pregnant again so that you can replace the baby that you aborted, but you never get over the pain associated with that first one, and then two or three babies later, you're still getting pregnant, uh, and then you have abortions to get rid of those babies because of the expense involved, and so it just creates this environment that allows um, us to continue to have this spiral so that the numbers relative to the poor in the uh, urban communities have not changed um, of any significance in the last 40, 50 years. Isn't that interesting? Right. Um, we've had several guests on the show who have who are post-abortive women, and they do say that after their first abortion, they went and, and kind of dove headlong for a while into the activity that, that led them to have an abortion in the first place. They seem to have... Yes. Um, been so affected by by what happened that they basically kind of closed their eyes to what they were doing and just kind of went back to that lifestyle even you know three or four times as many times and and ended back ended up back at an abortion clinic or um you know having having just just done things with their lives that disadvantaged them in the future i know we have had uh connie eller on the show and uh, Miss Connie is, is one of my good friends, and she had said in her in in one of the uh, public speaking venues that we've been, and she's kind of admitted that when she had an abortion at 17, it really did kind of ruin her life. It and has a lasting impact on you. Right. How does it? So I mean, how do we not? I'm I'm looking at this saying, how do we not see this? How do we not recognize that? The, the more black young women who get abortions, they end up back into a lifestyle that is what got them into an abortion in the first place. They're not really being helped by abortion. This commercial seems to be all wrong. And that why is so are we true. They're that? not being helped at all. Yeah, you know, they're not being helped at all because no one's dealing with the systemic issues of why these things take place in the first place. Um, you know, we as a, a, a ethnic group, and speaking about Black Americans, but it really speaks to the entire nation. But in particular, Black mm-hmm. America has to return to their first love, and that is uh, a faith in a Creator, something bigger and greater than yourself. The same thing that allowed us to survive. Um, slavery, Jim Crow, and all those other um, uh, horrible things that took place uh, in the years prior to the Civil Rights Movement, um, we as a, an, an ethnic group uh, persevered, survived, and even prospered, you know, where if you look at our numbers um, prior to the entitlement programs of the, um, the late 60s, um, the numbers were flipped and 70-plus percent of black families were two-parent male head of household. So, Today you have the exact opposite of that, and then you've got the dynamics of uh, post-abortive syndrome with women, and uh, uh, the other is fatherhood abortive um, syndrome, if you like, want to call it that, where you have a generation of men who uh, are carrying around that dark secret and um, are taking the stiff upper lip, but it's impacting them and their behavior. You've got a predatory sexual um, behavior taking place in young men. Um, you've got women, uh, young women who have uh, children with multiple uh, partners, you know, these are things that just did not take place um, a generation or so ago. And so now we've right. got this in government's find it to come in and say, okay, well, we've got this, we'll take care of all this. Well, at some point you have the tipping point where, um, you know, the, the, the money that you're paying in, 
to take care of individuals who cannot take care of themselves for whatever reason. Um, there's more people, uh, less people working than people uh, not working. So it's 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 a it's. it's it's something near and dear to us here at CURE. Our, our policy summit, of which Thomas attended, we touched on this with a, a, a stellar presentation by uh, um, uh, Pastor uh, Reverend Arnold Culbreth from Cincinnati, Ohio, who's um, assembled information and has a website that speaks to all this. In fact, you can go in and plug in and um, go to your your demographic area where you live, and they can tell you where the abortion clinics are, how many abortions in that region, um, how far you are from the abortion clinic, and uh, those types of things that really begin to illuminate um, this practice for people. And we just need to get the word out. You know, it's, let folks know what's going on. Uh, we understand the history of all these things, the origin of them, and then we know that it's not working, and more money is not the answer. And we've got... Uh, political regimes in power that thrive off of the chaos that comes from um, what it's doing to the community. Um, Lonnie, this is Melissa. Um, I had a question for you in regards um, to the abortion clinic practices in um, black and minority neighborhoods. Um, do you find mm-hmm. that there is a reluctance um, in terms of our, our national leadership um, to really address those issues and that our communities are being overlooked and that many women in the black community are being taken advantage of and hurt um, in these clinics and that there something that should be done about that. Yes. Um, that's um, you're probably the understatement of the year. Something definitely needs to be done. Um, if you look at what took place with Gosnell in Philadelphia, everybody thought that was, was the exception. Uh, we all know within the pro-life movement that that's commonplace across the nation. And so young women are sent there to be butchered, and if they're not uh, butchered, um, to be killed. I mean, it's in the case of Tanya Reeves and in the case of the, um, of the minority woman there in Philadelphia. And the only reason why Gosnell was caught, if you look at the uh, testimony and the, uh, the transcripts from the court proceedings, is because they actually went there thought they thought that he was uh, black marketing drugs out of his clinic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They saw a high incident of prescriptions, mm-hmm. and so they went in to this, and they discovered all this other evil stuff once they got there, and it was so heinous that they had to do something. But he had been practicing for 30 years there, 30-plus years, so right. it's not like people didn't know. And there had been women that had come forward and made complaints, uh, but law enforcement and um, the powers that be – um, which go fairly high up the flagpole, um, did not uh, uh, step in because, you know, abortion touches everyone. It's uh, giving examples. Why, why does the church community not speak up? Why does the pastoral community not speak up? Because, well, the little dark secret is Pastor so-and-so or Pastor so-and-so's wife or one of the elders or somebody. Somebody has participated in that, that, in that practice, and they don't want that stuff to bubble up to the surface. Right. That's what's happening in the communities. And so, and then the other thing is, my dad always taught me: if you want to know the motivation of a thing, follow the money. And uh, many organizations that um, are supposed to be for and about uh, a positive outcome for minorities, uh, or in the case of Black Americans, um, do not stand up for this because they're getting paid. You know, the donations come in. I'll give you a case in point: Reverend Jesse Jackson, and I use the term Reverend loosely. He's never had a church. Mm-hmm. Reverend Jackson used to be pro-life. Right. And when when he ran for his first presidential or his first presidential campaign, um, that's when he flip-flopped because, well, Planned Parenthood made donations to his campaign. Wow. 
So that takes place in a lot of communities. And then you have today, uh, you have communities that receiving faith-based money from the federal government. Um, they're usually church organizations. They have pregnancy clinics and things like that. Um, they can't talk too much from the pulpit about this issue for fear of losing that federal funding. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what's going on out there. That's an interesting phenomenon. I don't want to take us too far off course, but I just wanted to, to ask you a little bit about how how it is that that as as churches and church organizations, how did we come to accept money from from the federal government? I mean, I, I to me it seemed like from historically, this is what separation of church and state meant. <laughs> well. You know, it, it, it happened because during the Bush administration, a great idea that had a negative outcome, in my opinion, um, our, our very own Star Parker um, spoke out against uh, faith-based initiatives in terms of funding for churches and so forth for social programs. looks good on the mm-hmm. surface because we all know church churches uh, or the church community is the best disseminator of social services uh, in the country. I mean, it, it, if, if you profess God and, and believe in Christian values, the very Bible says we're supposed to clothe the naked, feed the hungry, you know, and uh, care for the needy. Um, that said, receiving federal funding to do so looks good on the surface, except if there's a regime change. If there's a change in administration who does not value those particular things and it looks to move in a new direction, and that took place in 2008 without me having to name names, um, and then you'll begin to see that now the very thing that you're supposedly supporting in terms of helping the community um, doesn't wash well on Pennsylvania Avenue. So you've got to do the tap dance now. You've got to do the tap dance because I do not want to lose that funding. And um, wow. so you've got many ministries that are involved with that. That's the reason. Right. I, I, to me, I'm objecting to all these programs that make not just people, individuals, but now whole organizations and institutions like the church dependent on money from the government. And when I said separation of church and state was meant to be, this was the separation, the church was not ever meant to get permission from the government to do X, Y, and Z, but when you take somebody's money, they are kind of de facto in charge of what you do because they give you the money. That money, you receive that money, and it's supposed to go in specific buckets, and you report back quarterly um, uh, and annually on where that money goes. And if it deviates into areas deemed inappropriate by uh, the government, they pull that money. Well, it's really, really hard to be independent, and it's really difficult to speak truth to power. And that's what the church is called to do is to be the salt of the earth, the one that you – know, we're the ones that are supposed to speak truth to power. We're the ones supposed to be able to say because – um, that's what God has called us to do going all the way back to Jesus' times. And all the heavyweights in the Bible, that's what they did. Some of them paid with their life, but they spoke truth to power. And it's difficult to do that now uh, when, you know, your hand is uh, receiving those uh, quarterly or uh, or annual uh, monies coming into your program. So it sounded good on the surface. Stark caught a lot of heat when she spoke against doing that. And many ministries yeah. went along that direction, a lot of, especially a lot of parachurch ministries here in D.C., and today they suffer. In fact, uh, donations have fallen off for church or faith-based institutions tremendously um, in the Beltway because, uh, wow. well, because of the administration that's in power. 
Right, right. Wow, consequences. Elections do have consequences, and then, you know, taking a little bit of money also has consequences. We're going to go to the phone lines, <laughs> and who do we have here? Babette? Yes, hi. How are hey. you guys? Excellent. So, hey. excellent. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I have a, a thought or question or anyone else had. I was talking to a friend yesterday through social media who is slowly evolving from pro-choice to pro-life. And she said something to me because we had just seen a person make a comment in a group discussion that he was not going to be pro-life because of his 12-year-old or 13- or 14-year-old showed up at home pregnant, there was no way he was going to support raising a baby or having them ruin their lives and, and, and impede their success by having a child. And she said to me in private message, you know, when I see things like that, she goes, I think, you know, back in the day traditionally in black families, if someone ended up pregnant, the family would, the baby would be absorbed into the family, meaning, you know, a lot of days now we hear stories about people finding out that their grandmother's not really their mother or it's really an aunt. And also another thing she had me thinking about, because she's evolving, so she's got a fresh angle, and she's getting away from this pro-choice. She's just, you know, seeing the truth in it. She said, do you think that that's so he's thinking the way he is? Because this is a young father, mind you, you know, in his 20s, because they are now directly marketing and advertising to where it's appealing to the men. Mm-hmm. And that's maybe something to do with the job market and the availability that a lot of women are on their health care plans. It was an interesting statement she said to me because I don't think I ever looked at that angle that Planned Parenthood is, it, you know, it looked like it was more predominantly to women because of the um, feminist movement and empowering women, you know, to destroy their future generations, as we know. But mm-hmm. now it looks like they're telling the men, you have the right to turn around and say, hey, you know, and step in and advocate for abortion even more so. It was it's just something that, you know, she gave me an idea and actually made the hair stand up on the back of my neck because now I'm looking through and trying to see, you know, is this something that they've always been doing or is it becoming more aggressive? And I don't know if you guys have seen the same thing. I think it's becoming more aggressive uh, that, that because it's shrewd marketing. Um they didn't have to do that before because, you know, many times those young women that go to those abortion clinics are being driven there by their boyfriends or husbands or significant others. Right. And so now because the uh, uh, the heat's being turned up in the pro-life community, they have to get creative in their marketing, and it's actually pretty shrewd marketing because it takes the quote-unquote, you know, that you, you protect your rights, you know, and uh, being able to say, honey, this is something we need need to have done because of this quote-unquote inconvenience. All right. In the case of the individual who is uh, a, a young child that, that, uh, that's, that's become pregnant, you know, inconveniences are, a, I don't want to use that term, but things happen um, in life that are not as planned. But some amazing things do come from that. And I know um, that, um, and I believe 
um, um, you all have met, and if you haven't, certainly need to do so. Uh, meet uh, Ryan Bomberger, and Ryan Bomberger mm-hmm. is the founder of the Radiance Foundation in here mm-hmm. in uh, Virginia, just outside the Beltway. And his whole um, organization or ministry, if you will, is about saying, hey, hey, wait a minute. So to say that because something less than stellar took place that something good can't come of it means that I shouldn't exist because Ryan is a, uh, was conceived in rape. And so Ryan, um, mother, who could have been more than justified to have him aborted because of the how she became impregnated, I was able to think through, thank God, and um, brought uh, Ryan to full term and then um, mercifully gave him up for adoption uh, to a family that wanted him and loved him as their own, hence his name that he has, and um if you follow his life and know anything about this man, you can just Google him. He is a phenomenal man, phenomenal man of God, and has done some wonderful work. He is a, uh, I believe, a Grammy award-winning or I forget or Emmy, I forget which one it is, award-winning um, documentarian and cinematographer, and has done wonderful, wonderful work nationally and internationally. And um, I cannot imagine my life or any of us in the pro-life movement would be lessened without him being here for the wonderful contributions he's made to make our job easier. That's that's true. And also one thing that I have to go back that I think we all missed in that discussion was he stated his 12, 13, or 14-year-old daughter, and that is technically, Mm -hmm. truthfully, his daughter's ages. And I went back and I asked him, why would your 12, 13- and 14-year-old daughters end up pregnant, and what are you doing as a parent? So. Yeah. <laughs> hey, there, just wanted the to put that out there. there. <laughs> yeah, that was the elephant well, in the room that half of that group missed in there. But, and I wouldn't mean to, and I let them know, I'm not trying to come at you in a, in a negative way, but if it's, the first thought is Planned Parenthood, me the being the person I am, my first thought is where were your children, like the old commercials used to say, it's 10 o'clock, where are your kids? Right. Yes. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think what's missing is. You know. right, I, I was going to say, going back to, going back to, you know, the push to get, to get men to start supporting abortion um, I think they're impl- like Delani said. They're implicitly admitting that they're faltering with uh, their campaigns for women because you know what they've said for years and years is this is a women's decision and men don't have any say in it uh, except if you support it. Now they're, they're going to go back and say, men, please support it because it's, it's the yeah. decision of women alone is not enough. Well, you know, it t- took two to make a baby, but only one to make a decision to abort until now. <laughs> now it seems like it, it requires more than one head to make a decision to abort. I think that they're conceding a lot of things about abortion that that are, go against their narrative now. And plus, this is pretty That's slimy for them to do that. It's pretty slimy to try to encourage men to pressure women to abort. You know, it's it, it's very slimy, but it's also very shrewd. I'm I'm an old marketing guy, and so when you think about that, I said, okay, they're taking something that's been happening behind the scenes anyway. Now they're bringing it to the forefront and looking to encourage men to do something that men have been doing all along. Um, because as in the case of my own my own personal experience, if I had uh, been uh, braver and had been more mature, and I was 
only 18 myself, um, and, and and made a different choice because uh, because the young lady that I was involved with was looking for leadership for me, and I remember mm-hmm. distinctly the conversations that we had, and um, what I did is I took the chicken way out because well when you're a kid that's what you do. Um, not fully understanding. Um, so, yeah, I played a part in that. I, I can just tell you right now today, if I had said, honey, we'll figure it out, don't worry about it, we'll make it work some kind of way, she would not have had that abortion. Mm. Mm. She would not have I had that. I know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Mm. The, and also, though, I, to go along with that, I just had, and it occurred to me yesterday or last, late last night, I brought up another thought based on this whole event happening here on social media and discussion. When I'm in my 40s now, my mid-40s, and so when I was working for Corporate America and they come around to do the enrollment for the insurance in my early 20s, I remember specifically all the way up to I think it was age 35, they would say in the plans when I would sign up, that included in the price of my health care was pregnancy coverage, maternity coverage. And I remember once when I was younger, I tried to eliminate that with this big carrier. I think it was Blue Cross. And they actually had their representative call me and say, I highly encourage you to put that maternity because if you end up pregnant, we won't cover it, but a lot of people then turn around and try and sue us for coverage. So now I'm sitting here thinking, is that also behind this big push? Because I do know that practice is still out there for women who are a certain age. I do know a lot of young folks try and wait it, you know, thinking, no, I'm not, I, I'm on birth control or, or I have pain or whatever, and anything could come along and happen. Which then I sat there and I thought, under that I'm hearing with the new um, Obamacare, is abortions are going to be covered. So that is that also something to fall in line there with their new marketing propaganda because women are on their husband's policy. So that's, what, that's where all that was going. Mm-hmm. That's a great you know, point. That's an excellent point. I just want to say I thought that, you know, it was an excellent point that um, I, I do believe there is a, a, a connection. And uh, uh, something I wanted to just chime in on, and I know you probably covered this on the program, but it just um, uh, jocked my memory. Um, abortion, we know what abortion does. The other, they, they have a multi-pronged attack. The other attack on women and preying on women is the um, the contraceptives. And there's contraceptives, and, you know, we get into arguments about whether they're viable or whether they should be done religious. And I'm not going to get into the religious ramifications of whether contraceptives should be used or not. It's not my point. My point is the contraceptives that are being pushed out into the urban communities are unhealthy for women. Um, there's been a lot of studies on Depo-Provera, and I'm sure you all are familiar with that, and what it's doing to women and, and to their uh, 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 the re- reproductive um, organs and damaging those, and, and, and in some cases killing them outright, um, is you know something that's not really even being talked about, and to the point where it's so bad that um, Israel banned that particular drug in Israel because they saw what it was doing to women in Africa, mm. and that's another 
That's the other thing they do. Okay, so okay, you're not pregnant. Okay, uh, but here, take these birth control pills. You know, so that you don't right. get pregnant. Right. And the right. Birth, birth control pills end up having the same effect because you're having women coming up sterile now because they've been taking Depo-Provera for a period of time, and the drug has had an adverse um, uh, impact on the reproductive organs. All right. Well, thank you, Vivette, for asking some really insightful questions. You can stay on the line. We actually have another guest on the line. Would you like to introduce yourself? Well, thank yourself you for her? taking my call. Oh, not a problem. Thank you, Vivette. Uh, we have another guest on the line. Would you please introduce yourself? I think they're going to want to hear from you. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. This is Pastor Bruce Rivers from Los Angeles, California. Hey, awesome. Um. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I want to thank you for the program. Thank you for for having uh, Lonnie, my good friend. And we go a long way back. Hey, Amen. I just I tuned in and I was enjoying everything I heard and Miss Babette. With the last civil right, I'm one of the I'm one of the CureNet pastors that uh, work with Lonnie and Star and the other and the other multi, multiplex of pastors around the country. And I just wanted to and I didn't hear anybody talk about you know the 40 Days for Life campaign going on right now, uh, right all across the country, all across the country. And and I am a poster board of father. I have no biological children, uh, and. Uh, we talk about those same things, and and uh, Star has been instrumental in, in helping me, and I'm working with Pastor Walter Hoy. Right now we're putting together the personhood amendment in the state of California, uh, signing up mm-hmm. pastors daily. Pastor Walter's up and down the coast doing these things, and I, and we've, we're getting ready to launch a campaign through Mr. Baumberger with Fatherhood Begins in the Womb. And mm. uh, when we look at those Millions of babies that have been aborted in the black community. You gotta. It, it, it kind of begs to me to understand what about those. If there's what, how many, how many million babies was the line you would say was uh, in our community? Uh, well, depending on which study you looked at, the Archdiocese of Washington D.C. last year, their report said uh, 15 million plus, and we're about a year into that um, from that report, so the estimates are somewhere around between 15 and 17 million. Amen. So you got to think about the 15 million or plus fathers that right. uh, have that are probably somewhere suffering from post-abortion trauma, um, like me. And uh, you know, when you realize this thing as you get older, here I am now, 58 years old. There are no more rivers in my life. My 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 my, my family line has been canceled. Amen. Thank God for. Mm-hmm. My wife Emily and her children, uh, who have taken me as father, and now I have grandchildren. Amen. They call me Papa Bear. I'm honored. But you know the the two that I I do know about that were my biological children. Uh, I will see them again. I'm I'm comfortable in the confession and comfortable in the repentance of knowing that uh, uh, God has forgiven me. And, and right. so those kind of things you know, we're working on, uh, me and Pastor Hoy are working on a fatherhood fatherhood program here in the state of California to alert these men and start doing interviews and start bringing folks to understand right. the confession and repentance. A lot of men out there just like me, there's a, that those aftershocks of male post-abortion trauma that we go wow. through. And yeah. uh, there's, a, there's a short list of some of those things. And anybody listening, if you... 
if you want to confess with this stuff, you know, you can either contact Lonnie or Pastor Hall or myself, and maybe you have difficulty with commitment. Maybe you've been dodging authority. Maybe you have no solid sense of identity. Uh, maybe you, you you work to impress moral leaders or keep women at bay or have trouble bonding or you fear impending tragedy and you don't own up to your mistakes and you feel inadequate as a leader. Those are those are symptoms of this trauma right. that we have. And I urge every person, if you go to the 40daysforlife.com website and find a, a place where and get on the line, amen, you've never experienced nothing. You know, we, we Christians, you know, I'm a pastor. I want to call it out like it is. We Christians, you know, we, we feel we're real comfortable in church on Sunday, amen, but mm-hmm. you need to get out and get on the line and stand. The violent do take it by force. And your first time you go out there when people call you names that you probably heard when you were young uh, and, and that you might have even talked before your conversion, when they call you names and spit on you and get up in your face and, and do all kind of odd things, my first uh, 40 Days for Life campaign in Santa Cruz, California, which is like ground zero for a lot of the training, um, now, we didn't go the first day because uh, we were in Texas at the time. And I'll never forget, you know, what I heard happened, you know, to to the people. We got there about three days into the campaign, and I I was just amazed that people could be that vile. But then again, right. we do have an ad, we have an adversary. That's, that's <laughs> and he's correct. Playing, he's and he's playing for keeps, amen, because to kill, That's steal, and destroy. Right. I'm a preacher, so, you know, you get what you get messing with me. <laughs> but, uh, but, but the beauty of what we have, we have a Savior. We have a God that, 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 that assures us if you read the last chapter of the Bible, we do win. But we still have to fight, church. We still have to fight. And so every pastor on this call or every person that has a pastor, is, and you've heard Lonnie say it, sometimes maybe we have participated and we have fear uh, for losing members. God will bring you some more members if you're doing the mm-hmm. right thing. Don't don't panic. Hey, man, the average church only 75 people anyway. Quit tripping. You might not ever have a mega church. But go ahead and do something that that will that God will look down and say, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop now because, you know, I'm a preacher and I can go. But thank God for <laughs> well, your, I, thank I God for your program. Well, well, thank you for calling in. I do have a question for both you and Lonnie, if you both want to take turns answering the question. Um, how, what would it take for post-abortive men to speak up? Because we do need them to speak up. I mean, God bless both, the both of you for speaking up. How do we get more men involved? Well, I'll, I'll start off. Um, I will say that for how we get men to speak up is by men speaking up. It takes somebody to step out out of their comfort zone and tell their story. And by telling that story, as I, I, Thomas mentioned, that I told him my story, and I didn't go into detail on the program because, you know, it's 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 lengthy. But um, mm-hmm. me telling my story touched him, and then I learned about his story uh, when we were in Chicago uh, from a different perspective. But it takes men doing that, and and, and the men in the church. I had. Uh, Bishop um, um, Daryl Husband on our radio program uh, Monday of this week, and he talked about candidly. Now, this is a bishop. This is a bishop, a man who has a large church and also has a number of churches under him. And he said that 
he had to come to terms and realize that he had to speak about his own part that he played. Now, here's a bishop admitting to playing a part in that uh, fateful decision, uh, but from him doing that, it's touching other men. Because um, truth be known, I mean, we've been addressing the issue as it relates to women, and thank God for the pregnancy clinic and all these wonderful things that are across the country. But the uh, the elephant in the room, if you will, what I call the, 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 the walking zombies out there, are the men who walk around as if nothing happens but are inside or secretly hurting and don't even know why they're hurting. You know, the statistics of which Pastor Rivers just stated, some of them, um, about the um, um, inability to commit relationships and um, jumping from job to job and a whole host of other things are all tied to the old, what I call the fatherhood abortive syndrome, where uh, historically rites of passage have to do with coming of age, um, yeah, you graduate school, you fall in love, you get married, you have children. It gives you a sense of who you are. I can speak to that on two platforms, one of which is me being a post-abortive father, but the other is having been a man that's been married and then got divorced. And I'll never forget the counseling they gave me when I became a divorced father is the counselor said, you know, you're not going to know who you are for the next three or four years. And I had no idea what that man was talking about. But he was right on point because he said, yeah, he says because you define yourself as standing in the community as a father, a husband, you know, a parent, a provider, um, all these things that you just take for granted that you just fell into that role and you rolled with, and now those things aren't there. So imagine a man who has played a part in abortion or numerous abortions or played a part in abortion – and he's married, and he convinced his wife because money was tight. Mm-hmm. And now she looks at him sideways, and he's wondering why she's so mean. Well, she's hurting inside. And then he walks around because he has to have the stiff upper lip. And so when men stand up and say, this is what happened to me, like, you know, Pastor Bruce, likes he quotes the Bible because that's what pastors do. Well, you know, <laughs> we are overcome by the words of our testimony. The testimony, Jesus himself told parables. So for some reason, telling the stories have impact on people. That's what needs to happen within the uh, the male community. And I tell you, it'll it'll be uh, if you remember what happened with Promise Keepers when millions of men from all over the country stood up and reclaimed the right to be better dads. We'll have that same thing, but I think it'll be to the tenth power. Mm. Amen. Very nice. Amen. And I just want to add to that. You know, and, and, and Lonnie's so right. I mean, I. When when my epiphany came, when I recognized what had happened, it was 30 years. 30 years later, I had never walked. I had walked around and everything was hunky-dory or whatever. I had never thought about it. And I was literally at a conference in Philadelphia, a learned conference with uh, Dr. Johnny Hunter and Star and, and Pastor Herb Luster's church, uh, my pastor. And um, sitting on the stage, they had invited me to be on the panel. Um, and Dr. Alveda King and some of the other ladies that were there. And the question they asked that night was, how has abortion affected you in the community where you live? Well, I had never thought about that question. And by the time the four ladies that spoke before me, when they got to me, all I could do was cry and run off the stage. Oh, dear. Because <laughs> well, I had God never thought you. about it. Yeah, I never thought about it. And then when I realized what I had, like I said, when I had realized that I played a part in 
ending my lineage uh, by not standing, by not understanding I should have stood or all those things. And uh, then I I went to research, well, where's all the stuff to really help the men? And uh, now there, there, there are a lot of organizations out there now, Silent No More, different campaigns dealing with beginning to deal with the men. And that's what we said a few a little while ago was was was, was uh, the PP people. They have stepped up their campaign to deal with the men also. To combat, you know, every time there's an action, there's a reaction. Amen. And when you start telling men that have done this thing, they want to go tell men you can keep doing this thing. And don't panic, you know. You you have a right also, and it all comes down to this choice thing, or, or the right to deal with your own body, and, and, and it's amazing. I I have to, case in point with Lonnie. You know, I was talking to another pastor on the phone one night about a myriad of different things. I shared with him about the idea for the book. We went on down the road about five minutes later, and he just started crying, weeping. And I was like, well, what's wrong, brother? He said, man, you know, you just set me free. I didn't even know what it was done. He said, man, you said something. I had paid for five of those myself. Mm. Wow. And I had never confessed that to anyone. See, it's the confession that we must get to. Uh, we At our conference, uh, at the Gosnell press conference we had it at the press club in D.C., men like Bishop, like you said, like Bishop Harry Jackson, Stood and confessed. Other pastors, uh, was a Caesar LaFleur, different other pastors, they, they made statements. When these men of God are bold enough to stand flat footed in the pulpit and, and share the good news that there is, there is repentance available for them for what they've done, you know, by terminating their own seed, that there is there's a way. That God, through Jesus Christ and the cross, has given us a way to step back in into the into the saving grace of God. Then, then men will be set free. But we got, like I said, we got a lot of preachers sitting around now, man, because of for whatever reason, whether it was on them or somebody else in the church. We, we, we got our little mouth silent. And Margaret Sanger and them, they did a great job. They did a great job when she launched her campaign of the Negro Project. Not only am I post-aborted, but my mother in 1955, they tried to get her to go to a Margaret Sanger-style clinic because she was married to my brother's dad. I didn't even know this. And she, they tried to get her to take me to a Sanger clinic, and she left and went to South Carolina and gave me to her second cousin, who I didn't find out until I was 51 years old. I was even adopted. But the same program that we fight against today, which is now called Planned Parenthood, from the I could have been a victim of then, but thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that I'm yet alive today. And I'm sounding the horn. We're watchmen on the wall, and I, I got my horn and my chauffeur, and it's all about letting men know. Because God gave the mantle to the man, and it's the men got to stand up for what God has told us to stand up for. And quit letting the oh, devil trick us absolutely. with propaganda and political aspirations. I'm through, y'all. God yeah, bless you. <laughs> women, well, thank you for sharing. <laughs> yeah, you. women have carried the have carried the mantle too long. It's men yes. have to stand up. They, they have to. Thanks. 
and, and until they until they do, um, the decimation in our community is going to take place. You know, it's really interesting if it, if the church stands up or if men stand up and the church mobilizes. You don't even have to worry about the abortion laws. Um, it'll die off for lack of business. Oh, because people will stop going to the clinics because they recognize what's going on, but it requires right. them to stand up and take responsibility and to repent and do penance and go back and make good on those individuals that they affected negatively from those decisions and apologize, you know, right. and apologize oh, to those women. I did not know. And I think that's what women are looking for. I, I, I said this. I'll say, say this, and I'll shut up because I, I, in my um, blogs, in Facebook, in radio programming, I, I stated once. I said, you know, there's this thing that exists within the black community. And they say, why are black women so angry? And it just hit me one day. I said, well, maybe they're so angry because black men are not standing up and taking ownership for the part that they played in this in this fateful decision. I know if I was a woman, I would be angry because I, I can't heal my hurt, and I don't know why I'm hurting. I know something's not right. I mean, I can go on and on. I had a, I have a very close relative that I lost uh, to an eating disorder because she never got over how abortion affected her. And nobody in the family knew that she had had one except me. And I found out wow. later, and she never got over it. She didn't go to counseling. They just thought that she, well, sometimes she's facey. Well, she just grieved over that. Every year on the anniversary of the date of her going to the abortion clinic, she would go into grieving. And she would grieve for about a week or two. And it got to the point where she couldn't work. Lost her job, and we lost her, and um, very, very close to me. And um, we lost her to an eating disorder. So it's it's you know we as I stated again as as Pastor River stated and the men in the CureNet Pastor Network which is our national network uh, are all champions of pro life and are fearless uh, speakers of the truth about this heinous practice and uh, we're going to keep beating the drum until uh, until the people wake up to what's going on the bamboozling that's being done to a community. And we're going to keep doing that. I commend radio programs like yours and the wonderful work that you that you all are doing to get the message out. And you consistently bring that message forward. I commend you for the work that you do. Oh well, that's sweet. Well, real, real quick, how can somebody find out find out more information about Cure, the Cure Network, and uh, possibly you know uh, contact somebody for help if they need it? They certainly can. We're a national network. We're headquartered in Washington, D.C. We are a social policy center and a think tank. We're the only um, the only um, social policy center and think tank of a, a conservative perspective that happens to be run by African Americans. And uh, Star Parker is the founder. It's her vision. She's had this vision for over 20 years. Her own story uh, speaks to what we all discussing um, with her travail into welfare and abortions years ago. Um, but she's charted with me with building this network. For more information about what we're doing, you can go to Urban Cure. That's Urban, U-R-B-A-N-Cure, C-U-R-E dot org. Um, or you can reach us at info at urbancure.org if you want to send an email. Um, we have a, a variety of landing pages and, and, and campaigns that speak to this. Um, the most recent one being cureprotectinglife.org, where we have detailed information about the Gosnell trial, how that relates to the black community, 
and then what the uh, community in general, uh, regardless of uh, ethnic persuasion, can do to stem the tide with this heinous practice. And um, as, as I stated earlier, men like Pastor Rivers, we have them across the country, and um, they're men and women of God that are speaking up and speaking the truth. Amen. So if you, uh, you are listening to this program and you want to be a part of Cure, learn some more about uh, how Cure has really a lot of economic, financial, uh, and uh, and social uh, papers and articles about how to kind of get away from being dependent on government, revitalizing the black community, especially revitalizing the black community. Uh, that is a really very, very good resource to tap into. So I highly recommend uh, people visiting the website and getting in touch with uh, some of the people there. So, Lonnie, I want to thank you so much for coming on the program. Uh, I don't know what uh, this, I don't know how to express how this how much it means to me because uh, we've wanted you on the program for a while now, and we've gotten to you, and it's like yay! <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so so much. Let me just mention in closing that uh, we had a policy summit here in D.C. where we had over a hundred members of clergy from across the nation on Capitol Hill. And this particular subject was one of the many subjects, but, yeah, we are a social policy think tank. So if you want to find out what you can do to stem the tide from an economic standpoint, uh, personal responsibility and all that, you can go to that landing page, which is curepolicysummit.com, uh, curepolicysummit.com, and there you will see all the subject matter experts that we had. And we had some heavyweights, including um, our very own uh, Star Parker, and also Dr. Ben Carson was one of our keynote speakers at that event, amongst many, many others, and a lot of legislators and lawmakers from the Hill who attended. That is fantastic. Um, I, I really love having a lot of this information right on the websites that are all linked together. And uh, it just kind of has a seamless flow to it. I, I highly, again, I highly recommend that people check that out. Um, and then, you know, thanks for so much again for coming on the program. Please come back again. Thank you. God bless. Thank All right, you. God bless. And uh, oh, and I wanted to don't I don't want to neglect to thank uh, Pastor Rivers for coming on the show and, and asking a question too. And that was a joy having him on. And so let's uh, move on to the, the next thing because we've got to kind of wrap this thing up here. Uh, we're going down to our, <laughs> our stupidest thing ever. And really this is the one that I found I, that I decided to use today is uh, a little bit sad. It's not, it, it's not like a funny, stupidest thing ever, as in it's mockingly funny, but something that just happened that I think that was really bad. Um, two little boys, uh, I found this, this story on the Daily Caller, two little boys were expelled from school for playing in the, their own home front yards with toy guns. And this had nothing to do with school. They weren't at school. They were in their own home front yards. This was this had nothing to do with anybody else. They were playing with each other. And apparently what had happened was a neighbor, nosy evil neighbor, decided that she didn't like what she was seeing with two little boys playing with these uh I I guess they were toy BB guns. They were they were BB guns. But they weren't real guns, they were toys. And she called the cops on these little boys, and let me see how old they were. They weren't that old. They were in grade school, I believe. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, they weren't even even older kids where you can think, well, hey, you know, this, you might be a little old for just playing. But they they were uh, 
in middle school. I'm sorry. They were they were expelled from their middle school, so they were, you know, 6th, 7th, 8th grade. Not that old. And so the school, the cops were called. The cops decided there's nothing wrong. They're just playing. And but what the police did then was call the school and tell the school that they were playing, these little boys were playing with toy guns in their front yards, and the school decides to expel both children. Now, what makes this the stupidest thing ever is that this one has nothing to do with the other, and this is no business of the schools to go around expelling children for something that they never witnessed, that didn't affect the school, and was harmless. And so what what ended up happening is that an angry, evil, nosy neighbor was able to cause so much trouble for two families uh, with a single phone call. How how are these attitudes, these negative attitudes toward even gun play, even toy guns, going to affect people all across the country? You can have angry neighbors. Everybody's got some kind of you know neighbors living next to them or near them that just really can't, you can't get along with, how is this going to be used against uh, your kids or used against you if, you know, they seem to find this opportunity to really stick it to people? So, I mean, this is, this is to me, the, the whole situation is the stupidest thing ever because this should never have taken place. Right. The school, the school should never have gotten involved. They're like, this has nothing to do with us, you know, we need to let this go. Yeah, and it's like you said, no one was harmed. It wasn't anything um, mouth uh, or malicious. It just, uh, there again, we see this um, overreaction to any reference to guns or even playing, you know, that you have guns. Right. Um, it's, it, it wasn't anything malicious. We're, we're forgetting that it, it, it is the evil and malicious intentions that makes, that causes gun violence. <laughs> You know, right. not kids right. playing around. <clears throat> right. Uh, right, and, and, you know, this wasn't even real. This was not even real. <laughs> yeah. completely artificial. So, uh, you know, that. so that's that. I, I hope the parents whose kids were expelled never take their kids back to that school because obviously you cannot trust that administration to make good judgments. I hope they take their Correct. kids to another school and, you know, those – that school learns a lesson. If you want to lose kids, uh, go ahead. Keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> so uh, so the, the very last thing, it's not the stupidest thing ever, but I have to, have to bring this up. It's the viral video called The Evil Woman Snatches Ball Away from Little Girl. And I watched this yesterday, and I'm like, I've got to talk about this. At the very end of the show. So here we go. And then the situation, it was like a, uh, it was a baseball game. And the ball went foul, and so there's a bunch of kids that are lined up at the edge of a balcony. There's a little boy and a little girl, and the boy has a baseball mitt and everything. And the little girl, uh, you can see on the screen, they have this right on the, the, I'm imagining they have this on the Jumbotron in the ballpark or something like that because the game announcer is making this announcement. So he says, okay, now the ball's going to go to the little girl because the baseball player is going to throw it to her. Well, this woman who is standing right next to the little girl reaches over and tries to intercept the ball. She misses. The ball kind of falls through her arms, 
and right into the little girl's hands. The woman just then just turns around and snatches the ball out of her hands and goes back to her seat, high fives a neighbor and sits down. Sits down and high fives the neighbor. And this poor little girl, the look on her face as she turns around, and goes back to her seat, is just like you you killed her puppy or something. She's like she was yeah. all expecting to catch this ball, and this, this woman just just takes it off out of her hands. And so to end with the the good part of the story is that they everybody saw this the like the entire ballpark saw this, and the team I think sent the little ball the little ball the little girl a ball, and to replace the one the the evil woman took from her. And I'm thinking, okay, you know what? If this woman had made a mistake, she didn't see these children standing next to her, and she thought that the the ball was meant for her. That that's okay. I, I can understand you're excited. You don't see other people, but when the ball bounces out of your grip into the arms of a little girl, you've got to at that point think, oh well, I probably that ball wasn't meant for me. And instead of snatching it away from the child, you let the kid have the ball for crying out loud. And but that yeah. obviously didn't happen, and so I I'm saying you know I I hope it's worth it, lady. I hope it was worth it because you know what you deserve is to get nasty looks at the grocery store from now on. Everybody thought, but I hope it was hope it is worth all the nasty looks people give you at the grocery store. Yeah, seriously, it's, you know we're we're a society that's supposed to care for children and. And want them to be happy, you know. And that that her getting that game ball would have made her her night, you know. That would have made her month, her year, you know. That would have been a very right. special moment for that little girl. And to take that away, um, for her from her is just it's not what adults do. It's not what a, a compassionate or just a humane person does. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I the the insult injury and the people realize is when she sat down, she went and high fived somebody. I- Thanks so much for joining us. God bless.